Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Born in Port Alberni in 1947, Paul Barnett is the son of Tom Barnett, former Member of Parliament and former Mayor of Campbell River, and of Ruth Barnett, nee Pidcock, remember that name, a teacher and former president of both Campbell River and BC Historical Societies and the Middle Natch Field Naturalists. The Pidcocks settled in the Comox Valley and Quadra Island area in the 1860s. Paul's great-uncles were Herbert and Reginald Pidcock. Herbert was the previous owner of Rod and Ann's property, above Tide, and Reg lived next door. Paul attended school in Port Alberni and Ottawa and University at UBC. He moved to Campbell River in 1970. He and his partner Shelley Hollingshead have lived in the Black Creek area for over 30 years. He served as executive director of the John Howard Society of North Island for 26 years, retiring in 2007, and has just recently joined the John Howard Society's Board of Directors. He's been very active in the NDP, serving as a campaign manager in many provincial and federal elections. He's currently president of PARCA. That's the Provincial Association of Residential and Community Agencies. These are agencies like the John Howard Society, spread across BC, working with people who have been in conflict with the law. And he's an appointed bencher at the Law Society of BC. Paul, welcome to Taking Measure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. I understand you're reading to us from the month of June. The month of June, measure of the year, and the portions starting with the subtitle organization. In a small rural community, only a complete recluse can escape taking an active part in some form of local government. Anne and I were both reluctant joiners, and I personally am socially lazy, at least in more concrete issues. In spite of this, and in spite of steadily increasing skill in avoiding casual commitments, as well as the more formal cares of office, we have both been measurably involved in local affairs throughout 15 years of married life. We arrived in Elkhorn Village immediately after a provincial election in which the Liberals had handsomely defeated the Conservatives. 
Local interest in the election was fairly strong, chiefly because it was supposed that the patronage system would promptly change the holder of every government job and privilege, a matter of no small importance in the early 30s in the settlement where most jobs depended on the government or the goodwill of large logging companies. That's really the start of the subchapter uh, called Organizations in the month of June. Why did you pick that one, Paul? Why does it speak to you? Primarily because uh, I knew both Rod and Anne, but I knew Anne more, and uh, primarily because she was on the board of directors of the John Howard Society for many years while I was executive director. And so the, <laughs> the title of the subject or organization struck me as something very appropriate. It's interesting that Rod writes of he and Anne as reluctant joiners, and there's other language around unsuccessful in trying to avoid getting involved in things when really they were very involved, and and that was part of the responsibility they felt to the community. Yes, and Anne became particularly involved in the community after Rod passed away in 1976 and got involved with the John Howard Society at that time and was on the board of John Howard until the late 80s and contributed so much. She liked to pretend she was reluctant, but she was certainly an effective and very, very loyal member of the society and contributed so much. Now, hold that thought. We're going to do a bit of backgrounding first. You have a direct family connection to Above Tide, which is now known, of course, as Hague Brown House as well, through your parents. Yes, through my mother's family, the Pitcocks. When you were introducing me, mentioned my great-uncle Herbert sold the Hague Brown House to Rod and Ann. My Grandfather George Pidcock was Rod's counterpart in Courtney, a magistrate as well. And there was that connection. And Anne used to kid me when I was visiting her at her place about how this whole place could have been yours, Paul. I used to say to Anne, well, I don't think it should just be called the Hague Brown House. I think it should be called the Hague Brown Pidcock House. So we had fun with it. So how did you first come to meet Rod and Anne? I think I first met Rod and Anne when they were visiting my grandparents in Courtney. Rod and my grandfather got together quite often to discuss legal issues. I also visited their place as a young child when my father was doing his MP duties and would be visiting Campbell River. I sometimes went along or our whole family went along and they were friends of the Hague Browns and would drop by to say hello. I knew both of them very early in my life. So you would have been quite young when you met Rod and Anne for the very first time while visiting above tide with your father. That's right. I remember him just being so very kind to me as a young child. I have to say then, when I moved to Campbell River, occasionally I would see him because my parents had moved as well to Campbell River. 
So they would socialize with Ann and Rod. And in the early 70s, I was working on a project sponsored by the United Church, supervising employment development programs in small coastal communities. And I just happened to fly over to Church House and on Homalkup territory with Rod one day. I actually sat in on his court while he was over at Church House. That was my first experience with Rod in a courtroom. And I have to say, my memory is of Rod being so fair to those appearing before him, trying to find the best possible solution in sentencing someone which would result in that person not committing more crimes. He um, really uh, was a brilliant magistrate. There are indeed many stories of him sentencing or preparing to sentence the uh, logger, for example, who might have misbehaved, or uh, a commercial fisherman or so, and he being very aware of maybe when the fisherman next had to be on on board the boat with the tide or the logger back in the forest, very much a working man's magistrate. I was going to add, Dan, both he and Anne were very respectful of First Nations heritage and culture. That came through loud and clear when Anne sat on the John Howard board, and we would talk about services to Indigenous communities. You mentioned your trip to Church House. Did you have other opportunities to witness Rod Haig Brown as the magistrate in court? Once or twice I did, uh, Dan, but Rod retired as a magistrate before I started working in the justice system, so I didn't have a lot of day-to-day contact with him. He was such a prominent person in the community, of course, and I would, throughout various things, I would have contact with him. I would visit with my parents continually to their place. I also should tell you that when I was at UBC, Rod Nan's daughter, Celia, stayed at the same uh, residence as I did, and I got to know her quite well at that time. More examples of a small world. <laughs> That's right. You met them when you were quite young. At what point did you come into contact with the writings of Rod Haig Brown? Well, my parents always had Rod's books, and so I would read them. Uh, I can't remember when I started reading them, Dan, but it was very early in my my childhood. And they really, really enjoyed Rod's books. So I was engrossed as well. So there was that connection. How does Measure of the Year stand up against the... or where does it stand in the entire canon of Haig Brown writing... It's not another book about fishing, which some people fear they're getting into when they start on Haig Brown. I really enjoyed uh, Measure of the Year. I'm not a fisherman, so uh, maybe that was the reason I was attracted to it, one of the reasons. But so well written, and I've always been an avid gardener. And so being out in the garden, my parents' garden as a child and, uh, and a teenager and my own garden 
And so I can relate to his descriptions of the vegetation and and the birds, etc. So very attracted to uh, Measure of the Year. There is indeed no shortage of gardening in this book as he takes us <laughs> through the seasons. Now, like Rod and Anne, you came to Campbell River and became involved in the community. Let's get philosophical for a moment. What is it that makes a person go that extra step? It's very easy to keep the blinders on and work nine to five or whatever and not feel the need to get further involved to go out and volunteer in any number of organizations. Rod makes it sound like they're lurking out there waiting uh, for, for you to volunteer for something. What sort of mindset does that take? Well, it was ingrained in me by my parents. They were always involved in organizations, whether it was politically with the NDP, CCF and NDP. My mother just was so involved with things like the Historical Society, one of the founding members of the Middle Nashfield Naturalists. It was almost demanded of me that I become involved in, in the community and I served on boards such as the Immigrant Services Board and others, and it was a duty that was ingrained, as I say. Now, Rod, in that passage you read, Rod does not paint a very flattering picture of the provincial politics of the day in the 1930s, the patronage system, and he, to his credit, makes some effort to change it and gets involved in that work because the patronage system clearly offends his sense of social justice. Essentially, if you don't like the status quo, you have some responsibility to attempt to change it for the better. What was it that started your ongoing involvement with the John Howard Society? It was almost by accident. I had a friend who was on the board of the John Howard Society, the late Terry Moist, and he approached me one day, and, and I was I just finished a, a job, and he approached me and said, there was a job opening at the John Howard Society. Would you be interested? And I was, and applied for the job, and was successful at that in the late 70s. So that's how I started with John Howard, and it was a lucky break because I enjoyed it for so long. I was uh, worked for John Howard for over 30 years, most of that being as executive director. So, as I say, it was almost by accident I heard about a position there. Now, Rod writes about his work with the local Board of Trade, its humble beginnings, meetings beneath a single bare light bulb in the back of a warehouse. But he also notes, and you can hear the pride, that the board became more effective over time and helped to improve many things, to advocate for forest conservation, watershed protection. There is pride there in his voice, I think, in some of the things that that board accomplished. I'm assuming, and I'm hoping you will confirm for me, that you must feel that way about the John Howard Society given the amount of time you've been there. I certainly do. And um, I've been very lucky since I've left uh, in 2007. The society has thrived under the leadership of my successor, Wendy Richardson, as executive director. And um, it's a larger agency than when I left it and is uh, serving the community so well. 
its establishment of the Foundry Program, uh, offering mental health services to youth is just such a, a step forward. And would have been very impressed with John Howard as it is now. Now, Rod talks about how they were almost trying to avoid getting drawn into all these different organizations, but obviously they they were a part of a lot of organizations. <laughs> we can see, among others, Anne is at least twice president of the PTA. He's president of the Rod and Gun Club. She winds up as a school trustee. He's chairing board meetings, and he's got his board of trade, and there are other things happening, and very much involved in the church as well. As Rod puts it, we were drawn into the affairs of organizations. Can you take me back to when Anne joined the board of the John Howard Society? Do you remember how that came to pass? I do, actually. She mentioned to a mutual friend of having some interest in carrying on Rod's work, helping those involved with the law. And uh, so I approached Anne. And she, as Rod said, reluctant in, in quotation marks, uh, I persuaded her to try to be a member of the board, and uh, and she actually quite enjoyed it. I can describe her as a board member. She was in some ways very quiet. as She would listen to discussion and then enter the discussion with something very wise and, and usually just so bang on and was very persuasive. She'd get a bit irritated if she thought things were going astray and did not suffer fools very well, but she contributed so much. And I have to refer to Anne's work with women through the transition societies and women who'd been harmed before the transition society in Campbell River started. Anne is best known, and of course, uh, Anne Elmer House is named after her. But she also was as committed to working with those offenders. She was very progressive and way ahead of her time as far as rational response to criminal behavior, knowing that rehabilitation was the route rather than just punishment. And was known only the the Hague Brown uh, house would have been a, both a transition house and a halfway house at the same time. She took in abused women, that's known, but she also would provide housing for um, people who had offended, who needed help. Part of my job was supervising federal parolees. I had a young woman who was in a dire strait and was homeless, fairly long criminal record for her age. And I approached Anne. If she knew of a place I could place this young woman, and Anne said, we can take her. There's a cabin on the land. I will be firm with her, but I will provide her with all she needs as far as housing and feeding her, etc. And um, was such a asset to the Campbell River community, especially those who were in dire straits. And I'm very, very pleased that uh, you're interviewing me and asking me <laughs> and letting me talk about Anne's contributions to our community. 
Certainly no discussion of Anne would be complete without mention of her incredible groundbreaking work in assistance to battered women, the Transition Society, Anne Elmore House, as you mentioned, continues to this day. And in very much, it is a, a tribute to the work she did so many years ago. One of the things that I enjoyed so much about being in social services in Campbell River, because unlike so many communities, there was such a good relationship between agencies and the school district and the health system. And personified that, the community working together to help people in need. And I had experiences in other communities where Transition Society would never talk to a John Howard Society. In some ways, they were rivals and judgments were made. But Anne, as I said, personified the idea that the community as a whole needs to heal itself and heal those in need. The last years of Anne's work on the board in the latter half of the 1980s, Anne gave up driving, and I became her chauffeur. And I would pick her up before the board meeting and then drive her home. And we would have discussions while in the car, but she would always invite me in after the meeting, and and I would have a cup of tea or a glass of wine with her. And she would, well, both of us would vent on an issue if there was an issue that came up. And I just had such a splendid time. And we'd be sitting in the library and looking out, and that's when she used to kid me about, this could have been your land, Paul, and and, uh, those silly pitcocks and that sort of thing. We'd tease each other. And it was such a good friendship, Dan. I enjoyed her company so much, and she was so good to me. It was a very, very pleasant period of my life. I enjoyed it so much. So these would have been opportunities to debrief. Yes, and I should also add that we had board meetings at Anne's place. If Anne was not up to coming into the office, she would host the board meetings, and we'd have annual general meetings there in the summer and enjoy the garden. And it was just a lovely place to, and it continues to be a lovely place to gather Anne was a contradiction because she would like to pretend that she wasn't social and and that sort of thing, but she actually enjoyed people's company in, in her own way. It was fun. Now, Rod goes to considerable lengths in Measure of the Year to describe how vital Anne was to their pursuit of, as he puts it, home, family, and a life fully lived. They were clearly a team. A combination of skills and interests, the development of the library here being a good example, each complementing each other. Did you have an opportunity to really witness them as a team? I didn't really have a lot of opportunities after my childhood, uh, Dan. When I first moved to Campbell River, I was in my early 20s, and I I didn't have much connection to Anne or, or Rod. It was really after Rod's death that I got to know Anne. And I regret that I didn't know them as well as others. But, of course, I heard so much about Rod from Anne. It was fun listening to her stories about Rod. And I wish 
in retrospect, that I had spent more time together with them as when Rod was alive. Another thing he points out quite eloquently in this chapter, this subchapter about organizations, is the cost, the personal cost of civic involvement. It's not just that you don't want to get dragged off to a meeting, but it's what could you be doing, what you rather be doing instead. I've got that chapter here in front of me, and there's the right towards the end of the subchapter. He says, if I may be permitted here, Anne and I remain reluctant joiners and are helped a little in this by the fact that we live outside the village. Since we have three children in school and another growing up to it, Anne is, for the second time in four years, president of the PTA. It sounds very logical until, as Anne says, you stop to think that the most important business a mother of four can have is to stay home and mind her children in loving peace and calm. For my part, since I write books about fish and game, I'm president of the Rod and Game Club. Again, it seems very natural and logical until you stop to think that the most important business a writer can have is to stay home and write books. Going out for either of us means neglecting something, if not several things. Children, garden, livestock, reading, correspondence, visitors, or even a simple chance to walk around the place and enjoy it. When we do have to go, we complain bitterly to each other and describe the measure of our stupidity with a beautiful precision. And then he goes on, of course, to say that while they tell each other the meetings were just the normal stuff, they always find something some spark in there to make them really enjoyable. And the closing line from the subchapter, the truth of it is, I suppose that we're neither of us as antisocial as we'd like to think, and we'll probably go on neglecting more important things for the warmth there is in a room full of people learning to know one another. That for me is more of the measure of the year magic, the way he sums that up. And obviously, you got to see that in action at your John Howard Society meetings with Anne, where people get to know each other. Exactly, Dan. Rod describes Anne. <laughs> she, as I said earlier, she liked to pretend. When I'd pick her up to go to a meeting and, oh, well, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. and But in the middle of the meeting, she was obviously relishing Having We always had lively boards and very good boards, and I was very lucky in that way, and had friends who were on the board at all times. So she enjoyed seeing her friends and making new friends and, and the discussion. So it was a bit of a pretense to uh, say she'd rather be home <laughs> at that stage. Of course, her, her kids had left and, and Rod had died, but... I enjoyed that part of her her character. It was fun. And uh, that line, the warmth there is in a room full of people learning to know one another. Is it safe to say that Anne made a better John Howard Society board and members on it? Oh, exactly. And she would, especially with younger women who joined the board, she would tutor them in many ways and, and invite new board members to come to her house to talk about how to be a good board member. And that, I, 
I'd forgotten about that. Thank you for reminding me. Uh, she did that, and she interacted very well with her fellow board members, and the respect she had was immense. Uh, she, she, sometimes her straightforwardness would put a few people off because she would come to the point, let's put it that way, if she thought discussion was straying off on a topic. And as the executive director, part of my job was attending these meetings. I liked the fact that there was somebody there who'd keep the meeting going in the right direction. So another reason to admire uh, Anne. She had a way of focusing the discussion. She certainly did. And and as I said earlier, she was way before her time and her progressive thinking about working with offenders. And when you look at the contributions to the community by Anne and by Rod, they are almost too numerous to mention. Is it possible to put into words the impact that combined they had on Campbell River, or Elkhorn, as he refers to it, in taking measure. What is so good about the preservation of their house and property is to remind people of that impact that those two had on the community. And the history is alive regarding them, and it's a very good way of reminding us of their contributions of being able to visit that residence. I just can't say enough about their legacy. Both of them made such a contribution to the Campbell River community. And it should be noted as well, it was just not Campbell River. Rod's work as a magistrate, he serves such a large area and would visit a whole court in other communities, and his impact was far and wide. Anne's was more focused on uh, Campbell River, but just as great. And in some ways, setting the course for others to follow. The groundbreaking work done on the Transition House, uh, Transition Society, certainly is a model that carried forward to other communities. Oh, exactly. Um, it's interesting, again, both... I might sound like I'm patting myself on the back, but both the John Howard Society and the Transition Society in Campbell River were models for other communities, uh, and they remain models for other communities. And again, Campbell River was that type of place. It was so easy to work in Campbell River, and I had experiences because we covered some of our programs north of Nanaimo up to Port Hardy. I had the experience of working in, in social services with other social services in places like Port Alberni and Parksville and Qualicum, and I know the difference between a community that really cared for people as a whole. And in that sense, Anne is the common thread from Transition Society to John Howard Society. Certainly. Now, Measure of the Year was originally published in 1950. The most recent edition, published in 2011, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. Does it still carry the weight that it did then? Does it still hold up, or has it become dated? 
Well, I'm dated in some ways, Dan, so I think it does. I hope that Measure of the Year is still being recommended by English teachers in, in Campbell River. I hope that it's been handed down in families and read. It should hold up. But as I say, I'm a bit of an older fellow at this point. We're all getting older, Paul. <laughs> Now, take me back. I'm here in the study as we speak. Take me back here. You've come back from a a board meeting. You've driven Anne home from a board meeting. You're doing your tea and debrief. When you think of Anne now, what is she saying? What do you hear her saying? I hear... (laughs) Well, two things I can remember her saying vividly. We would talk about governments doing something uh, that annoyed her. And here I would hear her say, how can they be so stupid, Paul? That was one thing. But we'd also roam a bit from the issues of the meeting we'd been at. And she would talk about my parents and tell me what a lucky person I was to have parents like I did. And uh, she was a a secret socialist. She was a devout Roman Catholic and a a socialist. She thought of me as, at least on the political side of things, as a comrade. (laughs) We would have so much fun discussing the world as a whole and our families. The secret socialist. So did you see much of her when you were busy out organizing your local election campaigns? No, no. Anne wasn't politically active. I know how she felt about things. It was fun being a friend of hers, because we certainly were on the same wavelength in almost everything. Paul, I have to tell you what a pleasure it's been talking to you. The thought occurs to me, because the topic is so broad, is, is there something else about Measure of the Year, about Rod, about Anne, that we haven't touched on here, where you'd like to go? I think, and you raised the issue of of impact on the community, and I just hope that people in Campbell River ingrain that into their children to give back to the community and help the community address issues as a whole because the Hague Browns and my parents certainly made that contribution and made Campbell River um, a lovely place to live. Indeed, and thank you for uh, helping me to consider, of course, that Hague Brown House Above Tide is not just a leftover. The writings of Rod Hague Brown, the work of Rod and Anne Hague Brown are that much more in front of us, revitalized, revisited, uh, because we have this place to come to. That's right, and I appreciate so much the work of uh, those involved with Egg Brown House and the Campbell River Museum. Paul, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Taking Measure. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. 
You can link to the Haig Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Haig Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.